0: you're listening to TIP.
1: When it comes to the FANG stocks or any of these stocks that appear overvalued that have had these great runs, I think it's just simply that the market and people in general, you know, myself included for many of these stocks, underestimated the growth and the durability and the sustainability of these business models, the longevity that they've had. And so...
2: On today's episode, I'm joined by John Huber. John is the managing partner of Sabre Capital Management and is one of our favorite guests to have on the show here at CIP. During the episode, John and I chat about the edge retail investors can have to beat the market, how watching sports has helped John become a better investor, what to look for in a company to determine if it has a strong moat and competitive advantage, John's thoughts on portfolio allocation and selling winners, the three factors that go into a stock's overall return what led John to recently making Amazon his biggest position in his portfolio, how the fan companies have transformed into more value plays, and much more. Over the years, the fan companies have exceeded essentially everyone's expectations in terms of growth and performance. And with that, they built massive competitive advantages based on the network effects and business models they have. It is exciting that we can potentially find many great value plays sitting right in front of us with some products that we use every single day. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with John Huber.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
2: Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And like I said in the intro, our guest today is John Huber. John, thank you so much for taking the time to chat for our audience today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Clay. Excited to be here.
2: Now, John, we've recently had on a few guests who put just a ton of emphasis on the macro environment. So our listeners can hear both sides of the story. Could you talk to our audience about why you don't put a lot of focus on what is happening in the macro?
1: I sort of follow Warren Buffett's advice on this subject which is the macro is important but it's hard to predict it's not I think he uses the term like it's not knowable and so it's important but not knowable it's hard for me to make investment decisions based on macro because number 1 I'm a long-term investor so I tend to own stocks for a number of years ideally you know when I think about an investment in a business I'm going to be owning it indefinitely and I truly think of stocks as pieces of businesses. And so there's no target price, there's no liquidation date. And so when I'm thinking about a business that I want to own indefinitely, you're naturally going to, you're going to have ebbs and flows in the economy. You're going to have good years and bad years inside the business. And so you kind of go into the investment knowing that you're going to be facing those headwinds from time to time. And so to the extent that you can take advantage of the macro environment, I try to do that when prices are down. But I think it's really hard to predict interest rates. I think economists have a pretty poor track record of they're in the business of predicting interest rates. And I don't think the track record is anything to really write home about. So I figure if they can't do it, then I'm not going to bother trying. And so I just I'm more comfortable. It's just my personality. There's more than one way to skin the investing cat, as I've often said. But for me personally, I'm I'm more comfortable just focusing more on the microeconomics, individual business the individual economics at the business level and, and uh, making my decisions on those factors.
2: Now, you wrote a piece that outlines that investors need to have some sort of an edge if they want to have above average returns, such as beating the market. What kind of investing edge do you believe that you have relative to others?
1: I think the biggest edge that investors have today, and I would include myself in this cohort, is the ability to think long-term. And so I know this is a sort of a phrase, long-term thinking, there's a term out there called time arbitrage, which is basically being able to capture the spread between the current conditions and maybe the conditions five years out or seven years out. The term basically means being able to look out further, than most market participants have the ability to look out. And the reason why it's so difficult for people is number one, it's I think it's just human emotion, human nature. People want results now, they want results quickly and so there's an extreme amount of emphasis on catalysts and things that might drive stock prices in the short run and obviously if you can make money now it's better than making money later but that game has become so difficult and so i think like the informational advantage that that once was out there has now been marginalized and there may still be informational edge in certain pockets of the market and at certain times perhaps it's possible to gain small edges here and there but i think The biggest edge in the market is just the ability to behave in a way that's very difficult for other investors to behave, whether it's due to their own impatience, or more often is due to just the institutional constraints that so many investors have, meaning the career risks that they have. I've talked a lot about investors who, for a variety of reasons, are forced to try to produce a result this year because they're worried about their bonus, they're worried about their job security and it's very difficult to do that and if you're trying to compete in that space you're competing with an enormous amount of resources and an enormous amount of talent it's a hard game to begin with for me it's i think the edge for me is the way i've structured my firm is number one i don't have career risk i have my own money invested i'm not worried about you know i think of saber capital as a my firm as a family partnership of sorts that happens to have outside investor capital but I'm under no constraints when it comes to being forced to try to make money this year. I can look out five years, seven years, 10 years, and not worry about what happens to my portfolio in a downturn. What happens if we hit a recession next year? Those types of things I try not to think about or worry about because it's outside of my control. And so I've tried to structure it in a way where those institutional constraints that are part and parcel to the industry don't impact me as much as they do other investors. And so I think that's the biggest edge. And for individual investors that aren't in the profession, it's a huge advantage because you don't need to, you don't have a boss, you're not answering to anyone. You don't need to look at your portfolio next quarter. You're not going to get fired. And so you can take advantage of that if you have the right frame of mind. So I think it's an important advantage that individual investors have that is probably underutilized, but it is a big edge if you're willing to use it.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. A lot of people say that retail investors, you know, they have no edge. They should always just invest in index funds. But when you think about that idea you're talking about, where retail or individual investors can have that time horizon edge, I saw you tweeted about Nick Sleep's chapter in Richer, Wiser, Happier by William Green. One of the lessons William pulled from Nick Sleep was to have that long term approach. Nick's been known to hold companies like Costco and Amazon for decades. And you know, we live in a, like a short-term minded world in terms of companies. They have a ton of pressure to think about that next quarter. You know, investors are always looking at the headlines, getting scared, oh, is a market crash coming. So, having that long-term mindset, I agree, is a huge advantage.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think and you mentioned like the constant flow of news, whether it's CNBC, whether it's Twitter, you know, we have a barrage of information. And some of the information is valuable, but a lot of it is just noise. And so the secret is obviously just to separate the signal from the noise. But the best way to do that, I think, is to oftentimes just tune that out. And so if you're a professional investor or an individual investor, I don't think it benefits you. Not that there's anything wrong. I'm not trying to pick out on CNBC, but you know, staying off the news, staying off of Twitter. I use Twitter. I love Twitter, but I, I use it in a way that doesn't detract from my ability to do my work and to think clearly. And I think a lot of investors get find themselves inside of that fire hose of information, and it can become very difficult to think clearly when you're inundated with opinions coming from every which way. And so, I think you know, just being able to tune all that out. And you mentioned Nick; so he in that, I think it was either in one of his letters or in that book. You know, he talks about time arbitrage, and he and he, he noted he had this interesting observation where the average holding time for the stocks that he owned, I think it was like 50 days, which, you know, obviously less than two months. So the average holding period was less than two months of the typical investor in in the stocks that he owned. And you know, he said, yeah, I'm trying to own stocks for five years, 250 weeks or something. So the implication there is if you're competing against people that are owning securities for two months, they're naturally looking at things that are not necessarily they're thinking about things that are going to drive the stock in the near term, right? They're thinking about what's going to make this stock go up in the next week or two or in the next month or two. And they're inevitably going to dismiss factors that somebody like Nick Sleep viewed as much more critical. And those are the longer term competitive advantages that show up over time, but don't necessarily drive results in the next three months, the next six months, even the next year or two. And so that's that weighting factors in a different way than the majority of market participants can give you that edge that we talked about before.
2: Yeah. And I think we can tie these two questions together of the time arbitrage and the macro environment. You know, People have been looking at the macro for years, calling for a market crash, year after year after year. If you were looking at the headlines and you might've got scared about the market being potentially overvalued in 2015, just to see it run significantly more, Another one of your writings talked a lot about sports. I'm someone that enjoys watching and playing sports myself. I couldn't help but recognize you were making this connection between the two. You know, I love investing and I love sports, and you're probably in the same camp. So, how has watching and studying sports helped you become a better investor?
1: Well, I mean, I just love sports. So, it's I talk about sports a lot because I love sports. You know, once upon a time, many years ago, I was a competitive runner in college, and I've always enjoyed the, uh, you know, one of the things I've talked about this in my letters and in my writing at times, but, you know, running for me has a lot of similarities, and I manufacture a lot of sports analogies, as you may have noticed in my writing. But one of the things that I think running, one of the similarities it has, or the common denominators that it has with investing is you have to put in a lot of work now every day on a consistent basis. And the payoff happens many months later in the case of running and and many years later, perhaps in the case of investing. I wrote about this idea I called long feedback loops, where investing is a long feedback loop, meaning the work you put in today, you're not going to notice the result for maybe three years. And so you, you don't get feedback on that unit of effort for a long period of time and that can be a problem for many people i mean if you think about like the difference between investing and in, let's say like a sales job where you know you have a certain quota to hit and you have you know make a certain amount of phone calls you get a certain amount of leads you get a certain amount of meetings with those leads and you have x amount of conversion inside from those meetings and and so it's a very continuous instantaneous feedback loop and investing it's the opposite and so with running it was very similar i'm a long distance runner Investing is similar, sort of a long distance, long term. So that I think that patience and that mindset has helped me. But to answer your question, I just love sports, so I'm always trying to learn from people who are successful, trying to learn from people who have spent time trying to get better at their craft. And that's how I view investing. It's a it's a craft that one of the things I enjoy most about it is the continuous pursuit of trying to improve. And so that's I think the satisfaction I get from playing sports and watching sports and also uh, competing in the game of investing as well.
2: Your most recent piece in relation to sports was talking a bit about Bill Belichick, how he made this decision to go for it on fourth down and ended up not getting it and losing the game in the fourth quarter. And, you know, you pulled these ideas how he's able to think for himself. He knows that, you know, every other coach in the league probably would have punted on that down and he just takes the emotions completely out of it. And I think that's so important when it comes to investing is you need to take emotions out of your decision-making, at least to the best of your ability. Because the market swings is going to induce those emotions and potentially make really bad decisions. And, you know, sports also can get really emotional. People, you know, put a ton of work into it. It just all comes down to these, you know, specific moments. And I think you also mentioned that Belichick would just be such a good investor because he's able to make decisions unemotionally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've studied Bill Belichick. I've made a study of a lot of the successful franchises, whether it's the San Antonio Spurs, whether it's the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, and or whether it's like the world's best marathoner or like Elliot Kipchoge. And it's just a lot of fun to study what led them to the success that they've achieved. And one of the things with Belichick that I've talked about is the fact that... So the play that you're talking about was something that I'll always remember. I've, I've mentioned it numerous times, but it's always fun to kind of repeat this story. But in 2009, he went for it, on, and this is so you got to think. Thirteen years ago was before sort of the Moneyball revolution in sports, which now we're very data driven. And I was talking to someone who works at the Denver Broncos recently, and you know they have like databases worth of information that they use to to crunch probabilities on all kinds of different scenarios. So it's a totally different game now than it was even a decade ago. But you know, two thousand nine, Bill Belichick made the decision against the Colts against Payne Manning to go for it on his own thirty yard line with the lead late in the game. So if you know football, you can imagine like that's a very gutsy call because it's fourth and two. If you don't give it, if you don't get the first down, you give the ball back to Peyton Manning with a short field. And like you said, you know, thirty one of the thirty two coaches would have elected to punt in that situation because that was the conventional wisdom at the time. But Belichick intuitively understood, I think, the probabilities of that situation. You know, you have Tom Brady, you need two yards the probability of you picking up that first down is probably greater than conventional wisdom would suggest. And even if you don't get it, it doesn't mean you necessarily lose the game because maybe your defense can stop Manning. So, you know, long story short, he went for it, which I just thought was astounding. And I happen to think it was the right call. And I'm a Bills fan, so I I remember the play well because I'm always rooting against the Patriots. And so he ended up not getting, you know, they didn't get the first down and then they ended up losing the game. And so it was one of those things where the outcome was bad, but I thought the decision was the right call. And that led me to spend a lot of time thinking about Bill Belichick and like, why did he make that decision? And I came to the conclusion that he made the decision because he thought it was the right decision. And he didn't care what conventional wisdom was. He didn't care what his players thought, what his front office thought what Bob Kraft thought, what the fans or the media thought, he thought it was the right decision to make. And so he made that decision. It was as simple as that. And um, he also, I think it's also important to recognize that at that point in his career, he didn't have much risk of getting fired. So he had the flexibility to make the decision that he thought was the right decision. And so there's some takeaways there when it comes to investing. And I think there's some takeaways there. You know, If you are a professional investor like I am, it, you know, it's very important to structure your, your firm in a way your business in a way that allows you to make the right decision without risk of without the career risk. I think that's an important takeaway there.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like chat GPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com.
0: carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Let's talk a bit about
2: business quality and managing a portfolio. Buffett is widely known for looking for businesses with an almost unpenetrable moat, which ensures that the company's revenues and free cash flows are sustainable and growing for the decades to come. What are some things we should look for in a business to ensure that a company has a strong moat and a durable long-term competitive advantage?
1: Durability is one of the things, it's top of my list when I think about, you know, I sort of have a four or five point checklist. That's very general, but durability is at the top of that list. And so what what I mean when I think my own personal definition of durability is being able to look out 10 years and or some point in the future and being able to visualize the company still, number one, it's still in business, but ideally it's doing more volume it's got more customers, it's having more success than it is now. And so that's durability. And so I try to restrict my investments to companies that, that meet that general definition of durability. And there are different... When it comes to thinking about the moat, there are numerous competitive advantages that can create a moat. And there are a few that I tend to look for. And I think there these are advantages that a lot of investors look for, but I tend to place a, a lot of emphasis on economies of scale. So I, I do like companies that are often larger they don't have to necessarily be large cap companies, but they have some sort of scale advantage in their industry. That gives them the ability... And the economies of scale, very simply put, is it's a cost advantage. It's the ability to spread a certain amount of fixed costs over a growing revenue base. And so the great thing about economies of scale is as the business grows that cost advantage grows with it. And so the unit economics of a business are really critical to think about. And it's probably helpful to use an example. But if you think about a a retailer, a lot of large big box retailers have economies of scale. So Home Depot did $4 billion in revenue in 1990, and it grew to $45 billion in revenue uh, 10 years later in 2000. And so the trajectory of that growth gave that business a huge amount of economies of scale. Because if you think about a retailer there's a certain amount of fixed costs that go into each store. And as the business grows at same-store sales, they can spread that higher amount of revenue over the fixed costs at at that store level. And what great businesses like Home Depot and Costco, and of course, Amazon's famous for this, what they do is they oftentimes use those scale advantages to pass a portion of those advantages to the customer in the form of lower prices. And so... Home Depot is great because it's very difficult for a local hardware store to compete with the pricing that Home Depot can get because of their large scale and their buying power. And so, you know, Walmart and Costco and Home Depot and, and Amazon are famous for that. And this sort of the scaled economies shared the, to use another Nick Sleep term, the ability of these businesses to pass those savings along to customers leads to further growth and further economies of scale. And so those are advantages. And it's not just retail. I mean, if you think about a business like Netflix, there's an economies of scale advantage that I think that company enjoys that smaller competitors have a harder time competing at the unit level. So, you know, Netflix has 222 million subscribers, and if they go out and spend $300 million on a piece of content, which is a huge amount of money, it's only a, around a dollar 40 per subscriber. And, you know, that same piece of content would cost hbo four dollars right three or four times as much it would would cost you know peacock which has 10 million subscribers would cost them 30 dollars. and so netflix has the ability to spend more money and still at a per subscriber level or at a unit level if you think about it that way the costs are lower and that's in a nutshell economies of scale and it's great because again as the business grows the economy the advantage of that scale grows with it and so I think that's a big one. Um, network effects is another advantage that I spend a lot of time thinking about and is a theme with a number of the companies that I own. I think network effects like economies of scale grow as, as the business grows and, you know, network effects are pretty self-explanatory. So we probably don't need to spend much time there, but those, you know, that's a very valuable advantage if, if you can find it in a business. Barriers to entry is really important. That's something I spend a lot of time thinking about. Copart is a company that I really love, and um, Copart actually is a business that exhibits all three of those advantages, economies of scale, network effects, and barriers to entry. And it's it's got a network effect because what Copart does, most people don't know, it's not a household name. What they do is essentially they operate junkyards. That's the easiest way to think about it. So if you can visual, visualize a junkyard, that's what Copart does. And they run salvage auctions. And so if you crash your car and you total your car, Geico will take the car and send it to Copart to sell on GEICO's behalf. And so Copart works with insurance companies to sell these salvage vehicles to dismantlers and other dealers, and uh, in some cases, the general public that might want to buy these cars. And oftentimes, these cars get shipped overseas to different buyers, and they get repaired and, and they go back on the road. But Copart is a great business because it owns the land. And so there's economies of scale because it can spread its growing revenue over a fixed cost of the land And that leads to attractive unit economics that increase over time as the business grows. And it also has a network effect of buyers and sellers. And insurance companies go there because it has the most buyers, and buyers go there because there's the most sellers. And then, most importantly, I think with Copart is the barrier to entry. And that's because no one wants another junkyard in their backyard, right? So it's sort of a NIMBY, um, not my backyard concept there. And it's very difficult for a competitor to develop the relationships. It's not just the fact that no one wants it in their backyard. It's very difficult to get the zoning permits to set up, even if you wanted to, to set this up. And so Copart has, I think, some natural advantages there. And it's a business that enjoys um, relatively low competition. There's one other main competitor, but it's not a business that gets a lot of attention from VCs. You know, there's not a lot of people that want to go into uh, the junkyard business. And so there's just some natural advantages that I think a business like Copart enjoys. And so, those are three things that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I think the fourth thing on the checklist of durability would be um, just the adaptability to change. And so, this is sort of a softer, more subjective feature. And culture has become sort of a buzzword. But I, again, like hard work, it's like the concept of hard work. Everybody talks about hard work, but it doesn't mean that hard work is less valuable or not valuable. Everybody talks about culture, but it doesn't mean that culture isn't valuable. So, if you have a great culture, if you have proper incentives. If you have great human capital, all of those things are critical to a company's competitive advantage, especially in a day where we live in such a fast-changing world, where I think adaptability to change is a critical variable. It's crucial to be adaptable. And a lot of that has to do with management and the foresight that they have and the flexibility that they have and the talent that the company has. So I think all of those four areas are what I try to think about when it comes to durability.
2: Could you talk a little bit about how you manage new capital that's coming into your fund? Do you continue to just invest in your best ideas or are you looking at the opportunity costs of all of your ideas and allocating that way?
1: Yeah, it's the latter, Clay. It's the opportunity costs. So that's the easiest way for me to think about cost of capital. You know, I have a general hurdle rate in mind when I'm thinking about new investments, I have a general sort of Return on capital that I'm looking to achieve over the very long run with stocks in general. But from a practical standpoint, the way to, I think, make proper decisions, if you think about like a decision tree, is just take your best idea and just use that as sort of a guidepost when you're thinking about adding to a new stock or buying a new stock or adding to an existing stock, you know, weighted against your best idea. Obviously, within the confines of a portfolio and some common sense rules where. You know, you're not going to have 100% of your portfolio in one stock. So there's a practical limitation there. But the way I think about it is you know, I have my best idea and I have the second or third or fourth best idea. And you know, if the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, as you go down the list, you know, you're waiting, if I have 10 stocks, do I want to buy an 11th stock that I'm, that I'm looking at? Or does this 11th stock, you know, would it be better to add this incremental capital to one of the other 10? And so that's sort of a common sense way to think about portfolio management. That's my own personal method.
2: You know, as I've studied many great investors over the years that are buy and hold types, they often mention that one of their biggest mistakes has been from selling one of their best ideas because they felt like there's better opportunities elsewhere. Do you ever sell some of your best ideas if you feel that they're trading far above their intrinsic value?
1: I do. Yeah. I think sort of the reality of running a fixed portfolio and it's not necessarily fixed because there's inflows and outflows and ideally there's there's inflows as the business grows and so if you're fortunate enough to have continuous cash flow one of the advantages that individual investors have is they essentially have what Warren Buffett has at Berkshire which is assuming that you have net surplus. So if you have a job and you have income coming in that exceeds your monthly expenses and you have surplus cash. And you can decide on what to do with that cash. You can put it in the bank. You can invest it in a stocks or in a real estate or in anything else. But the nice thing about having residual cash flow is you don't necessarily have to sell your holdings. You can let your cash build up and then you can slowly add to a new idea or to an existing position. And it's a great advantage to have. If you have a fixed amount of capital, then this comes back to the opportunity cost idea where, you know, when I think about selling a stock... Yes, I'm selling stocks if they reach a certain level where I think my going forward return is going to be mediocre. Through a significant, painful learning experiences, I've learned that if you have a strategy where you own quality companies, I think you're better off keeping those companies. I've sold stocks too soon. I've sold stocks that I've watched continue to rise, and that can lead to a significant opportunity cost. Oftentimes, you know the company that you own a lot better than the stock that you're about to buy. And I've made that mistake as well. So I think over time, I've learned through my own, through empirical observation and my own mistakes, that it's better to hang on to these quality companies and let them compound unless you have a really great idea. And so it has to, for my own sort of general mental model here is it has to be significantly better. It has to be like pound the table better than the existing idea. And so when I get an idea that's significantly better than the stock that I own, then I would consider trading those two. But if you own a business that's producing, say, 15% returns on equity, even if the stock gets a little ahead of itself, so to speak, that's still a pretty attractive rate of return. If the business is still compounding value over time, you're almost always better off holding that business and letting that value continuing to compound for you, rather than replacing with cash, which, as we know, earns very little in today's world. So that's my general philosophy on that i become more reluctant to sell a stock unless I have a better idea. And I tend to be fully invested most of the time because you're better off owning a business that's compounding at 15% than owning cash that yields 2%. Obviously, there's exceptions to that, as we've learned that in recent years with some of the exorbitant prices that we've seen. So I certainly would sell a stock if it got significantly above fair value, but those times are generally, I think, rare.
2: Yeah. It just brings me back to Nick's sleep and Warren Buffett. Nick's known for holding Berkshire Hathaway, Amazon, and Costco for many years and having very concentrated positions in those. And then Buffett, very concentrated in his Apple position. He bought it in 2016 at a great price. And I believe you bought it around the same time as well. And to my knowledge, he hasn't really sold any of his position. And in reading a piece of your work, I noticed that you purchased Apple at call it a 10x free cash flow and scaled out of it at 30x free cash flow. So it's pretty obvious today that Apple, you know, was much closer to a fair value. And in retrospect, it's pretty obvious that it was a bargain back then.
1: Yeah. I think like if you think about your returns to just think about in very sort of common sense terms, your return in a stock as an investor, your return in a stock is the product of a few very simple factors. It's three simple factors, really. It's the earnings growth during the time that you own a stock. It's the change in the PE multiple during the time that you own the stock. And it's the change in the shares outstanding during the time that you own the stock. So if you own a stock for 10 years, and the stock goes from, let's say, 15 times earnings to 30 times earnings, then you get a 2x return from the multiple, right? The multiple goes from 15 to 30, that's 2x. And if the earnings double, if they grow 7% a year over 10 years, that's a double. And so you get a 2x on the earnings growth. And so 2 times 2 is 4. So you get a 4x right there. And then if the company bought back half of its shares, then you might get another 2x on the reduction in the share count. And so, you know, you could earn an 8x return in that simple example, just through a combination of those three factors. And so the trick with investing is getting those three engines to be working in your favor. And that's why valuation is sometimes ignored in real rampant bull markets. But it's always critical to think about if you're a long-term investor, because the price you pay today is going to be is going to have a direct linkage between the price you pay today and, and your ultimate return as, as you know, over the, the course of the time that you own the stock. And I can give you a simple example. I, I was looking at Domino's Pizza recently, and it's not a stock that I own, but it's one that's on the watch list. And that stock has grown its earnings at 5X over the last 10 years. And it's one of the best stocks of the last decade. And so it's an interesting case study, but I think the stock has returned about 12X even after a recent decline. It's returned about 12X over the last 10 years. And so that's north of 30% of years. So it's been a phenomenal stock. And the, you know, if you think about those three factors, you can easily see that if you bought the stock 10 years ago, you, you paid 20 times earnings. Now it's 30 times earnings. So you got a 1.5X there. And the earnings went up fivefold. It went from 100 million to 500 million. So you got a 5X there. 5X times 1.5 is about 7.5. And then the rest of your return came from the fact that they bought back 40% of their shares. And so there's 60% of their outstanding stock left now than there was 10 years ago. And one divided by 0.6 is about 1.6. And so you get a 1.6 multiplier on the buyback, which simply means you have a 60% greater ownership of each share that you own is 60% greater share of earnings. Those three simple factors, five times one point five times one point six is about twelve X. And so that's what you want to think about when you're thinking about investing is can these if you pay thirty times earnings, is it going to go to sixty? Probably not, right? You're most likely if you're paying 30 times earnings, maybe it stays at 30 if it's a great business. And that was kind of the logic I had with Apple. At 10 times earnings, I thought it was the business that should trade at 30 times earnings. I talked about this in in letters six years ago that. It didn't make sense to me that Apple wouldn't trade at a multiple like a Starbucks or like a Nike. Like a, it's the world's greatest consumer brand. It should trade, you know, at a P multiple in line with some of the world's greatest consumer brands. And it's got an incredible business and a very sticky ecosystem and all of that. And so trading at 10 times earnings didn't make a lot of sense. Now that it trades at 30 times earnings, it's a different story. And the interesting thing about Apple is the earnings growth during the time that I owned it was not significant as you might think. The majority of the return came from the 3X that I got the multiple expansion. And I think the earnings went up about 50%. So you got another 1.5X there. And then you got another maybe 1.3X on the buyback factor, if you think of that in terms of a multiplier. And so that's how you get 6X. And, and so it's interesting. If you pay a cheap enough price, you can earn you know, 40% returns over a six-year period in a stock like Apple that is huge and not growing all that fast. And so going forward, you know, Apple's a business that at 30 times earnings, I think it's probably falls into that bucket of still a great business. I don't think it's overvalued, but it's probably fairly more fairly valued at this level.
2: It's pretty exciting that, you know, as a retail investor myself, I'm able to find some of these great deals, the fan companies for example. You know, many of those are considered more value plays today. But since the 2008 financial crisis, we've seen the emergence of these massive companies. Everyone knows about them. But a decade or so ago, they were considered these overvalued growth companies in many ways. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on how these companies emerged from being overvalued growth companies to reasonable value plays for many of these Warren Buffett style type investors.
1: Value is not what a company earned last year. So the PE multiple has nothing to do with value. It can be used as a guidepost. I mean, we were just talking about PE multiple. The change in that multiple will determine your... uh, Is is one of the three factors that will turn in a stock. But the value of a business is what it will earn going forward. So if you go out and you buy an apartment building, doesn't matter what that apartment building earned last year, because that's what the other guy earned. All you care about is what that thing is going to produce in cash going forward. And that's where you derive value. And so when it comes to the Fang stocks or any of these stocks that appear overvalued that have had these great runs, I think it's just simply that the market and people in general, you know, myself included for many of these stocks, underestimated the growth and the durability and the sustainability of these business models, the longevity that they've had. And so all of these companies, the, the common denominator is they have huge competitive advantages and they have huge markets, and you know the value of a business is probably going to correspond to those two factors: the moat that the company has, and the size and potential of the market that it operates in. And when you have a great, competitively advantaged business in a massive market, you're going to be able to uh, grow for many, many years. And and that's why um, I think that's that's one of the reasons why these stocks have done so well. And I think the other thing that I've noticed with you know stocks like Google and Facebook, for example, in digital advertising, I, I think. Many people looked at Google, I remember back in 2004, when Google IPO, people were talking about comparing the size, there were some, you know, sort of pundits that were talking about, like the newspaper advertising industry, as whatever it was 20 billion or something as if that was the market that Google competed in. And and so I think very quickly, people realized that Google was creating a new market, right? Google was sort of mobilizing this army of small businesses that could now advertise because they could never afford to take out a full page ad in the newspaper, but they could certainly afford to spend $50 on Google keywords. And so Google and Facebook created a huge amount of advertisers that did not exist before those two companies were started. And so, you know, Facebook has 10 million small businesses as advertisers. And I would bet the vast majority of those small businesses were not advertisers before Facebook. And the value proposition that these big platforms have provided these small is significant. And so I think when you have great value proposition, great economics, great competitive advantage, and a big market, you know the result is what we witnessed over the last 10, 15, 20 years. These companies have continued to sort of defy base rate expectations.
2: Yeah. With regards to just the moat and the network effects of these companies, it's like, you can't deny just the power that they have and the durability they have in their cash flows with that, my biggest question with many of these fang companies, is there ever a point where they just become too big and the regulation side is the biggest concern for me? You know, What's the government going to do when they get so big that they just essentially have a monopoly on the markets they're in?
1: Yeah, they are monopolies for the most part at least in certain aspects of their business. And they all will point to... I always think of the famous Peter Thiel quote, where monopolies will always tell you they're not monopolies. They will always point to how competitive they are. Google is always... Whenever they're dragged in front of Congress, they're always saying, "You know, our competition is a click away. Amazon's always talking about the fact that they're a 2% share of a global retail market. So they're always understating their competitive position because they're monopolies. And uh, of course, the opposite with companies that don't have monopolies, they're always talking about how great they are and how competitively advantaged they are and so forth. So these companies are monopolies, perhaps not necessarily by the technical definition in each of their businesses, but they have monopoly-like, they're certainly extracting monopoly-like rents. And yeah, I think that's the, the biggest risk is some sort of legislation that comes out. That ends up handicapping either the growth rate or the way that they do business. So whether it's being forced to open up the app store, if you're Apple and you're no longer allowed to charge 30%, or you're forced to open it up to competing app stores, that's going to chip away at the um, monopoly that is the app store, which is a phenomenal business. There's potential risks there. But I think these companies... And you could go through each one of the companies and there are different risks and there are different advantages, but they all... I think they've proven to be successful at navigating some of these challenges thus far. And the other thing about regulation that's interesting is you could look at something like GDPR in Europe, which has really entrenched some of the advantages that a company like Google enjoys or Facebook. It makes it harder for smaller competitors. And that's we saw the same thing in the banking industry, where the large banks were much more able to deal with regulation than the small banks. And so after the financial crisis, right now, everybody's focused on tech. You know, 10 years ago, everybody was focused on the banking industry. We have to regulate the banks. They should be regulated utilities. They're too big to fail. And so the regulators instituted a, a suite of regulations and legislations that certainly had enormous impact on the banking industry. But what it did is essentially entrenched the large banks, JP Morgan's, the Bank of America's of the world, to the detriment of the smaller banks, which were forced to either see much lower returns on equity trying to compete, or in many cases, you know, they were ended up being forced to sell out to some of the larger competitors that could deal with the costs of the regulation. So it'll be very interesting to see, but yes, that is a risk. I think that's the number one risk to any of these companies is, is you know, what does regulation look like going forward?
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/slash host. That's Airbnb.com/slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do.
0: For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as ten dollars by visiting fundrise.com/slash/millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrisecom flagship This is a paid advertisement.
3: Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com.
0: All right, back to the
3: show.
2: I noticed that your allocation to Amazon over the past year went from 0% to your biggest position Could you talk about what led you to making this drastic shift in your portfolio?
1: Yeah, I think Amazon is one that I spent some time. I so I've owned Facebook for a number of years and I'm always studying the digital advertising industry. And so I'm always trying to talk to people who are advertisers. I'm always doing a bunch of research just whether it's talking to advertisers, whether it's talking to people who work at ad agencies. I just like to stay up to speed with what's happening in the advertising market generally you know, one of the things I was thinking about last summer is, you know, I happened to be talking to someone who was talking about how a lot of the dollars at this particular firm was shifting from Google to Amazon. And so Amazon, in this case, was with this particular customer was taking share, essentially. And so if you think about Amazon, if you are a merchant, or you're selling something, a product, you can advertise on Google, you can advertise on Facebook, or you can advertise on Amazon. But Amazon is such a great place to advertise because the only reason people are really going to Amazon is to search for something that they want to buy. So they have specific intent. And so it's a very high return on ad spend business for advertisers, because if you can get your product in front of a customer, the conversion rate is going to be higher, perhaps, than you might find for the same type of product on Facebook or Google. Although both of those platforms are very valid sources of return on investment, return on ad spend as well. But Amazon, I think for that particular use case is is probably the best. And they are taking share. I think over 50% of the product searches begin on Amazon. And so as I I started to do more research, just started to think about that specific situation, Amazon taking share from Google in search advertising, product-related search advertising, it got me thinking how valuable the digital real estate that Amazon owns is. And then I started just thinking more about, and this was kind of, this coincided with a decline in the stock price. You know, stock price going down makes the company more valuable. It doesn't make the company more valuable, it makes the stock more attractive. You know, Thinking about the value of the digital real estate that the company has, the enormous growth runway, and the potential for growth in advertising and being very familiar with digital advertising, it's a great business, it's very profitable, it's very high margin. And then coupling that with just the enormous amount of infrastructure spending that the company has engaged in over the last two years, I think they've doubled the size of their square footage and their fulfillment network in just the last two years. And so if you think about back to the economies of scale, the infrastructure that Amazon possesses is essentially impossible to recreate, because it's not just the capital that would be required, which is north of $100 But it's the operational expertise that the company has. So the ability to couple the software with the infrastructure, robots running around in these warehouses now, and just the operational expertise that that company possesses, the human capital combined with the physical capital and the infrastructure that it owns. Creates a very durable, very valuable mode. And to me, I think it makes it very predictable that you can look out 10, 20 years and that company is still going to be providing the services and the products that they are today. I think it's a very predictable business. It's durable. And there's a huge amount of growth in some of these higher margin businesses, whether it's the enterprise software business, AWS, whether it's the advertising business, whether it's third party logistics, whether it's video games. There's so many businesses tucked inside of Amazon that make it a very interesting business. And then couple that again with the increased earning power and the, uh, and the decline in the stock price is essentially the reason why I decided to make it a big position. I think it's one of those stocks that offers attractive risk reward with very low downside over time. It doesn't mean the stock can't go lower, the stocks can go anywhere in the near term, but I think there's very low risk of losing money in a stock like that over the long run
2: very valid points. I pulled up the digital advertising revenue for Amazon, and it was sitting at 10 billion in 2019. And it's projected to be 31 billion in 2022 this year, and then 39 billion 2023. So that's just one of their revenue streams that is just growing very fast. AWS is another revenue stream that's growing very fast. And the stock is still trading about where it was in the middle of 2020, so nearly two years ago. So very compelling case for Amazon, I think
1: yeah and there is a huge growth runway for all of those businesses. and what Amazon does is it turns its costs into revenue stream. They have a hundred jets now, cargo jets, and what they're essentially going to do is turn that into a business that they'll have excess space on their trucks for whether it's target or I don't know walmart will want to want to use amazon's fulfillment network, but they'll be able to provide third-party services on the excess capacity that they've invested, whether it's warehouse space, whether it's Space on the jet or the trucks. And they'll turn that into very high margin revenue that in turn gets reinvested into further growth and further CapEx. And the great thing about Amazon is they can take money from the retail business and invest it into more servers. So it builds out AWS and they can take AWS cash flow and put it into logistics and put it into content. And there's all different. There's almost an unlimited appetite for that company to soak up its immense earning power into high return on capital investments that lead to further growth. And these are, again, building this flywheel, which is the buzzword that everyone talks about when they talk about Amazon. But it really is just another... It's a buzzword that refers to economies of scale. And Amazon, like Costco, is famous for sharing those scale advantages with either their vendors or their customers. And that leads to growth over time. And yeah, it's a great company and I think there's still a long runway ahead. If you think about and this is what Amazon would tell you is, you know, again, 2% market share that they, they did about 500 billion or so in GMS, which is the volume that runs through the retail store and that includes third-party retail. You know, if you think about the size of the global retail market at 25 trillion and that's growing at 6% a year or so in nominal terms, which is the one way to think about it is the global retail market is adding 1.5 trillion in new volume every single year, which is like three Amazons. And so there is, in theory, a huge potential for Amazon to continue to grow for many, many years ahead. I mean, this is a business that could, in theory, be doing two or three or $4 trillion in GMS and still have all these other businesses that it owns. So I do think there's a long runway for Amazon going forward.
2: Now you do own some of these FANG companies in your portfolio, and you also own what I would call maybe the potential next list of FANG companies. Are there any up and coming companies that you would like to chat about for our audience?
1: There's a few that I'm looking at right now, which I'll probably keep under wraps for now. Maybe on the next podcast, we'll come back and we'll discuss some of of those new ideas. But yeah, I'm always on the hunt for new emerging businesses. And when I say emerging, I don't tend to invest in companies that are... I tend to want some sort of size. So I want the company to exhibit a track record of success. But yeah, I'm always trying to look for companies that I think have the potential to become some of these, the next great long-term winners, whether it's maybe not to the extent that Fang has succeeded, because those are very rare birds. But yeah, companies like... you know We mentioned Copart, and I can use that as an example of a company that's smaller. A company like NVR, which is a home builder, the important thing to remember, I think, is although there are a lot of exciting companies in the technology space, there are also some great companies outside of the technology space that you know I would encourage your listeners to think about. Because sometimes you can find a very attractive company in a business that is sort of boring. And Peter Lynch used to talk about this in his books, that some of the best winners of all time come from these really boring industries, like auto parts, you know, O'Reilly or AutoZone or... You know, in the case of Copart, it's like a junkyard.
2: You mentioned Domino's.
1: You think of like a Domino's pizza, right? One of the best stocks of all time, and they sell pizza. So sometimes it's a business that, for whatever reason, is seeing declining competition. Sometimes it's an industry where people don't want to go into. So it could be like a company like Service Corp, which operates funeral homes. I do look for companies that have attractive economics. My rule of thumb is I want it to be durable. I want it to be a business that is quality, which I would define as high returns on capital. And a business that has a growth mindset. So a business that thinks about, you know, I like to think about like where is this company headed over the next decade? And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a fast growing company, but value is created through high returns on capital and some growth. You need growth, certainly to create value over time, and you need high returns on capital. And so the combination of those two things is what creates value over time. And and those can come from you know, it could be come from a technology company that's the next fang. It could come from some boring company that operates in sort of an old world industry that doesn't have a lot of competition. So there's a lot of opportunities out there. And in times when the market is stressed, that's the time to be hunting. And I would consider this to be maybe one of those times.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. Now, in studying Nick Sleep's work, again, I'm going to mention him. He mentioned that one doesn't have to behave unethically to achieve spectacular success. With that said, I'm curious if you think about whether companies, what their impact is on society as a whole. For example, there are studies that Meta's platforms, Facebook and Instagram, have a negative impact on the mental health of younger people, especially children whose brains are still developing. Does the business's impact on society factor into your process at all?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely does because I'm a big believer in the idea and this predates the whole like ESG movement, which has really picked up steam in the last few years. And I think like the core of that movement, I think it has a lot of things right. I think unfortunately a lot of it gets bogged down by through marketing and through disingenuous motivations. But I do think that the idea in general is very valid. And I think. The value of a business is going to be dependent on the ability of a company to satisfy like all of the constituents. And so, if you think about the different parties that touch a business's ecosystem, you have obviously you have customers, you have suppliers, you have employees, and you have shareholders. And maybe you have the community at large that the company operates in, right? Like those four or five different constituents all have competing motivations. And so the trick with a business is to sort of delicately balance those conflicts, those inherent conflicts of interest. And I think the best businesses do a good job at keeping employees happy, keeping customers happy. And over the long run, if they're able to do those two things, then they'll probably keep shareholders happy. And if a company is, you know, because you think about keeping customers happy is simply offering something of value. And so if you have, if you're a business with a great value proposition over time, you're likely going to be able to keep some of that value proposition for yourself. And so I think it's really important to think about all of those things. And I do try to think about how no business is perfect. And, and there are, like I said, conflicts of interest. Some businesses prioritize employees over shareholders. Uh, some businesses prioritize perhaps customers over employees. Some businesses are focused purely on profit. And you know I think businesses that are focused purely on profit can lead to situations that degrade the competitive advantage, if there is one, over time. and And I remember reading articles in two thousand four, two thousand five. You mentioned Nick he's famous for investing at Costco for many years, and Costco got a lot of criticism from shareholders early on. You know, twenty years ago, for not exercising the pricing power that it had. So shareholders said, "Look, you guys have this enormous buying power. You're getting all of this, you know, all of these economies of scale. Keep some of it for us, right? Keep some of it for yourself." You know, Jim Senegal, the founder was famous for always keeping a certain fixed gross margin, right, at 14% and, and not extracting anything extra because he knew that over time, keeping, passing those economies of scale onto the customer would lead to growth. And so Costco's sort of the poster child for keeping employees happy. They've always had slightly above average wages. They certainly keep customers happy. And in the long run, they keep shareholders happy. So I think that's important. When it comes to things like Meta, like Facebook, the problems that that company has. Number one, I think, the way I think about that company specifically, and a lot of the companies in today's world fall into this, you know, whether it's a social network or technology in general, there are a lot of issues with social networks. One thing I would say... I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this as a shareholder of Facebook, and there are certain issues that I think are significant, and, and the company should be addressing, should be working on these issues and should be addressing these issues. And in my talks with you know a variety of different engineers at Facebook, I've become convinced that the company is genuine. The people that work there are genuine. They do want to fix these problems, despite what you might read in the paper. And one thing about the newspaper, Wall Street Journal, the Facebook files, and all Newspapers are direct competitors to Facebook. You know, Facebook has devastated the newspaper industry in many ways. And so you have to sometimes have that, you have to be cognizant of that when you're reading these articles. It doesn't mean that the arguments that the newspaper is making are invalid, but you just want to be aware of these incentives. But I'm a big believer in in the idea that communication in general is a net additive to stability. And so I think a lot of the attention on Facebook has been focused on the costs of these platforms and not the benefits. And so when you think about communication in general, it's always been a net positive for society, right? Communicating with your fellow man, communicating with people across borders, you know, traveling. I think a lot of the ills in our society, whether it's racism or anything else, is a whole different discussion. But a lot of the problems are often rooted in the idea that people that do things differently than, than the way we do it. If you, I'm a big believer in the idea that traveling and talking to people and learning about different cultures, when you boil it down, it's another human being. It, we have more in common with people that are different than us than than we might realize. And so, I think communication is a way that solves some of those issues at a very general level. I think if you're a business that provides communication tools, I think in general, you have the opportunity to be a net contributor to stability, to peace, to economic growth, to all of the things that we all want in sort of a civilized Western society. And, you know, if you think about like, there's a reason why Putin doesn't want Facebook in Russia, right? There's a reason why China doesn't allow Facebook. Because Facebook and social networks in general lead to people communicating with each other. And communication leads to informed individuals. And informed individuals, that leads to a liberated society. And it, it sort of flies in the face of the agenda of an autocratic leadership. And so I think in general, Facebook you know, it has positives and negatives. But I think if you're analyzing a company with a um, sort of an unbiased lens... Without any sort of, you know, putting aside any biases that you have toward the negative problems that the company certainly faces. And I'm not trying to dismiss those problems, there are problems. But I think it's important to look at the benefits as well as the cost, basically.
2: Yeah, so many good takeaways from what you mentioned there. I think it's important just to be mindful of the incentive structure. And it's just so good to find those businesses that have those positive feedback loops, you know, tying back to Costco, they provide low costs they're able to build new Costco's all across the US and the world. And those costs are distributed amongst more and more people as they build more and more stores. And it's just this positive feedback loop and flywheel that is really like a self-fulfilling prophecy where it's almost like an unstoppable force. So John, before I let you go, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I truly think the audience will as well. Before I let you go, I wanted to give you a handoff to let the audience know where they can find you and connect with you.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, you can find my company's website is sabercapitalmgt.com and the name of my firm is Saber Capital Management. And so you can go to my website and find um, you know, a lot of the historical writing of the archives of that I've posted over the years. I'm on Twitter as well, John Huber 72. And so, yeah, those are the two places. You can find my email address on there as well, and and feel free to reach out. We'd love to connect.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, John.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Clay. Appreciate it.
2: All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by The Investor's Podcast Network.